This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Jonathan Abel, and I'm on the road at the 2023 meeting of the Society for Military History, one of the world's largest organizations of military historians. And we're here in sunny San Diego, California, at a place that is a great opportunity to meet with and talk about military history and military historians. So what follows is a set of interviews with several across a variety of fields in topics that I think are very interesting. Hope you enjoy. I'm here with Dr. Joshua Meeks, Assistant Professor of Strategy and Policy at the Naval War College. Dr. Meeks, welcome. Hi, good to be here. So uh, walk us through a little bit uh, of, of what you study and what you've been working on lately. Yeah, so uh, my background is in French Revolution, Napoleonic history. Uh, one of the Florida State Institute on Napoleon and the French Revolution uh, grads, worked with Rafe Blaufarb there. My dissertation that I worked on there was largely, I started out looking at Corsica. That was what initially grabbed my interest, was specifically the Anglo-Corsican kingdom. When I actually went in and did research, I got a lot more interested in the broader diplomatic arena of the Mediterranean during the War of the First Coalition specifically, but then broadening it out. So that was my first book, was largely looking at that. Um, I've done a few other things with Napoleon. I have a, a reference guide on the Napoleonic era, and I'm currently working on a um, more lithe global history of the Napoleonic era, uh, as opposed to the bigger uh, doorstop, excellent doorstop uh, that is Alex Mikabritz's, uh work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I couldn't. I have the my most recent the most recent thing I finished, and I, I just can't quite break away from Corsica. Corsica is always kind of the Uh, Something that I'm thinking about a lot, something that I'm working on a lot. I just finished a chapter for a book that looks at the, it's an environmental history of islands, and it approaches Corsica, my chapter looks at Corsica and the, um, what I term the socio-ecological resistance mechanisms uh, of how the Corsicans used the environment and used nature and kind of, uh, how do we want to say, they... uh, co-opted it for their resistance to Genoese, French, English, and then French rule. Right. Uh, just, it doesn't matter who's right. in charge, we just want to resist them. And things like the, the chestnut trees that were imposed on them by the Genoese end up becoming a symbol of resistance against the French and right. how the French want to make them profitable and yeah, so uh, it's a it's a lot of fun. I always go back to Corsica, but right now I'm also doing this bigger global history project. So that's where I'm at in terms of my work is always a little bit of Corsica, always a little bit of looking at um, one of the ways that I use Corsica is to look at small state agency and great power competition, mm-hmm. um, even looking at the struggle for autonomy and the struggle for neutrality. Uh, the consortium on the revolutionary era mm-hmm. that was mostly that paper was mostly on Tuscany if right right right, right. and yeah. so another small state trying to exercise a degree of agency in uh, great power competitions 
Yeah, so let's dive into the British aspect of this in particular, um, and kind of start at the at the beginning, perhaps the the, the obvious place for people who don't do what we do, which is uh, Britain is nowhere near the Mediterranean. So small details, small details. Right, right, right. And and we're probably of course familiar with British Gibraltar, um, but what are the British doing kind of east of Gibraltar in the Mediterranean? If they knew, maybe they would have succeeded. Um, so they are there in in the 1790s, and specifically, or in the 1790s specifically, they are really trying to figure out what it is their role is going to be in combating the French because they originally go in and they say we are not here to take territory, right? We're not here to do anything other than to secure the interests of our allies, and in fact, even secure the interests of the French monarchy to a certain extent, right? To the extent that you really want to buy into that rhetoric, you can, right, you can debate. Right. Um, so they go in just trying to stabilize the region, right? And one of the, the, the lines that Pitt, William Pitt uses is indemnity for the past and security for the future. It's a, and I love that line. Yeah, it's, it's a good, good line. statecraft line. Like, yeah. What are you doing in any particular uh, quagmire that you find yourself in? Well, security for the or indemnity for the past and security for the future. That sounds a whole lot like something the Athenians would have said before the Peloponnesian. Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. And I, I mean, I think you can trot it out. Even uh, I mean, I think the British would say this in many different scenarios through, right. across their uh, their their moments of hegemony. Uh, so that's kind of you know that's what they say they're doing. They say that they're just going in with this vague purpose, and then they end up taking Corsica, and. That puts the lie to that in a lot of ways. They don't do a good job of taking Corsica. They don't do a good job of holding Corsica. They don't do a good job of governing Corsica. But it really raises those eyebrows of, mm. are you really just here for security or you know, you know wanting to make sure that your uh, factors over in Smyrna are okay? Right? Mm-hmm. Are you really just here for that? And I don't think the British actually have that figured out themselves, is mm. my, my read on it. Um, so they're interested in trade, they're interested in protecting that trade, but I think they're also, some parts of the, the British in the 1790s are interested in a little bit more. Right. So you, you raise an interesting dichotomy, I think that's worth diving into. Um, the British do have trade, if you want to call them missions or posts or whatever, throughout the Mediterranean. Um, in particular, they have a big one at Livorno, mm-hmm. right? So what makes the British want to move from having trade plus a few strategic ports, I think everybody understands why they'd want Gibraltar, to actually wanting to acquire territory in a way that makes them kind of look like the French they're fighting against. What's what's the what's the mindset shift that happens? I'm gonna <clears throat> I'm gonna maybe be a little bit on, on the squish side and I'm gonna say I don't know that there is a mindset shift. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the problem is I don't think that this was a particularly deliberate or well conceived or well thought out uh, enterprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's again I think that's one of the reasons why it fails is because there is no mindset. It's opportunistic, right? It's highly opportunistic and and then, and it's also idiosyncratic, right? Corsica is a weird place, right? In right. Which they they want to come in, and most places are not going to invite the British to essentially take over control of their government because most places a don't have quite the thirst for autonomy that Corsica does, mixed with the complete inability to pursue that autonomy on their own. Right. right. They need, they have to have some partner in a search for quasi independence. And the British were convenient. Mm-hmm. Should the British have accepted that offer in the seventeen nine in seventeen ninety three and ninety four? Probably not, honestly, uh, because they didn't. 
they didn't have a grand plan going in. They didn't really know what they were doing. And Corsica doesn't do a great job of fulfilling that purpose that you mentioned, right? Right. Of actually being able to protect trade. And in no small part because the Corsicans themselves antagonize everybody. Mm-hmm. And they, I mean, I think they, they realize that there's a, some, there's a kernel of something good in what they try to do in Corsica. And they do it a lot better in Malta about 10 years later, right? Right. Eight, eight to 10 years later. Yeah. So I think they're in Malta's better strategically situated for that purpose of actually protecting those sea lines. Uh, it is a lot more amenable to a closer partnership with Great Britain. It has a port. It, ha- it, it has a port, a functional port. Right. right. So the, the Cors- Corsica was a mistake. And it, well, hot take, right? You know, for the <laughs> three people that care. Right. Um, I think that. So when we think about what was their plan, I don't think they had one. What was their intent? Mm-hmm. Vague, vague protection of trade. But um, I would argue that partly the intent as well was to try out some new forms of statecraft. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was very um, conscious even, but the person who does the Corsican experiment is Gilbert Elliot, who was one of the commissioners to Toulon, which Toulon was gonna, was going to be a, a weird thing if it had survived longer than you know and months. this is the the kind of federalist revolt yes, in the yes. in the beginning of the revolutionary wars where Toulon essentially declares itself to be independent of Paris and well and, and and it's and it's messy too right because when the British come in the British are granted custodianship of Toulon not control right not even like it's it's this custodianship on behalf of Louis the 17th it's mm-hmm. I mean you can say that it's just sort of uh, doesn't mean anything that it's just kind of flavor to put onto a British controlling a port in you know France, which is maybe true, but you know they, so Gilbert Elliot's there, he right, does that, right, right, and he's okay with that. He's okay with that weird ambiguity of what are we doing here. He's a good man for that job. Goes to Corsica, very ambiguous what they're actually doing. He ends up as the governor general of India. Right? He is he has a pretty interesting career path. Mm-hmm. And in India, in the you know first two, uh, first decade of the nineteenth uh, century, he is pretty milk toast in terms of what he does. He's like, I'm gonna take a lot of the lessons I learned. I'm not. We're here. We don't need to do anything big or different. And he just kind of is very, he's very chill uh, mm-hmm. in in India in a way that he really wasn't previously. So let's talk a little bit about a kind of the background of Korska. You've touched on a lot of the elements of it. Um, Corsica, of course, is an island off the coast of, of both France and Italy, uh, north of Sardinia. It's a place that has always been the property of people who didn't live on the island, right? Um, it's also paradoxical because Corsica has nothing anybody wants. There's no major industry or resource or even population that's all that useful. All the Corsicans do... Uh, disproportionately join armies in Europe. They are very, well, I don't want to say they are violent violent tendencies, you know, there's a danger yeah. of like, oh, you know, the nature, but, you know, vendettas. All right, that, right. They right. have a reputation. Right, <laughs> right, right. But that's not something you need to control the island to get, right? No. And yet, the great powers constantly fight over it. So that those great powers are the Italian powers, it, it passes from Pisa to the Papal States to eventually to Genoa, as you mentioned. Uh, the Genoese lose control of it in the 1720s, and there's this kind of nativist uprising. Um, and from basically the 1730s until the period you're talking about, there's a series of interventions. Uh, there's an imperial intervention, there's a lot of French interventions, and then the one you mentioned, which is called the Anglo-Corsican Kingdom. Uh, and, and, and the Corsicans are, are very good at playing outside powers against each other. 
and bringing one in and then trying to bring another one in to get that one out, right? They also have to fight each other the whole time. Um, so where are the Corsicans when the revolution begins? Their, their ideology tends to be proto-revolutionary. There's an argument that Corsica had the earliest democratic constitution in Europe, right? Palmer. So, so once the revolution kicks off, what what are the Corsicans thinking? What's what's kind of running through their mind? They well, it's it's always hard to paint with too broad of a brush because some Corsicans love it, some hate it. Of mm -hmm. course, always right. Uh, in 1789 and 1790, there is a. I mean, they are thrilled with the prospect of a non-despotic is, is I think kind of the best way to phrase it a non-despotic mm -hmm. regime in France and Paris does they recognize French or they they say Corsica you are our brethren's in liberty you've been fighting the fight that we are we are now joining in on your fight right you've right. been fighting this for decades maybe even centuries you know we're late to the party but we you know welcome brethren and there's excitement about it there's excitement in no small part because they bring back Pasquale Taoli right who is in London at this mm -hmm. time, and they say, come back. He's uh, not really doing anything in, in London, just kind of hanging out. But he comes back and becomes the, you know, take, retakes his seat as the father of the Corsican nation. And so the original intent is, I think, always, let's have Corsica be part of France with a unspecified degree of autonomy right. and in liberty. A lot of things are unspecified, uh, but that's the that's the intent. There's a lot of excitement for that. There's excitement from the Bonaparte family, right? Mm -hmm. and Napoleon immediately goes back to Corsica. Well, not immediately, but quickly goes back to Corsica, right? And thinks that this is it. I get to be with my hero, Pauli. This is mm -hmm. going to be fantastic. And they quickly have a falling out. And I think the falling out between Pauli and and um, Bonaparte and the Bonaparte family overall, not just Napoleon, the Napoleon's a, a big part of it. I think that's descriptive of the falling out that Corsica has with the revolution overall. There are different visions of what Corsica integrated with France is going to be, and there are some Corsicans, Salicetti uh, among them, who it becomes a, um, what's the... Uh, Commissioner, uh, he comes down. He goes down to Corsica. He becomes a representative, representative on mission, commissioner, representative on mission, all over the place, causing problems. Uh, mm -hmm. And he, you know, he's he's very very Corsican and right. also very very invested in the French Revolution. Right. Napoleon also very Corsican and very French revolutionary in many ways. So mm -hmm. there is a split within the Corsican understanding of their place in the revolution. And in 93, they revolt against the revolution, as one does, uh, very popular that time of year. Yes. Um, and they say, we are protecting the tenets of liberty that the French Revolution has forsaken. Right. And this is the period, for, for people not familiar with the timetable, this is the period where the, 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 the terror is kind of starting. Mm -hmm. So we've moved from this kind of generalized bourgeois republic to what is increasingly becoming a tyrannical and murderous state. And it comes at the the, uh, the, the execution of the king. That is a, it's a turning point. It's a turn, it's certainly a turning point for Paolo, right? He mm -hmm. says, I do not want to be part of a regicidal regime. Which is uh, ironic on many levels. It, exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's not true of all Corsicans, right? Salicetti, right. he is fine being part of a regicidal regime. He says, right. you know, we, this is not a problem for me, as a representative from Corsica to Paris, I support 
regicide. Right? Uh, and Paoli says, no, we don't support regicide. So there's a lot of conflict and tension even within uh, what the place of Corsica is in, ref- in regards to the radicalization of the French Revolution. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the personalities you, you brought up, because I think you hit three of the four big ones. Um, so on one hand, we have Pasquale Paoli, and he also has a brother named Clemente who's involved very much in, in a lot of this, too. Um, so, so who is Paoli, and why is he kind of the godfather of all of this? <sighs> he's, uh, he's an, there's, a, there's a book by Peter Thrasher that has, a, I think, a fun name, although I don't remember if it actually has a question mark after it or if I always put the question mark after it. It says, Pasquale, Pasquale Paoli, enlightened hero? And I put the question mark after it. I don't yeah. know that he actually does, because Thrasher is a, a fan of Paoli. But there's this question, is he this figure of enlightenment. He was educated on uh, in Italy. He was mm-hmm. part of, his father was part yes. of the 1720s yep. revolution with leader or just... Kind of a second level. So Gafori was the big mm-hmm. leader right, until right. he's assassinated. Um, and there's a few others. So yeah, his father is kind of a... He's an early revolutionary who then kind of just drops the mic and leaves. I'm not sure he ever went back. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he, he definitely brings his sons up in this, this Corsican uh, nationalist fervor. Yeah, and you know, Paoli, by all accounts, well-read, well-a thoughtful individual. Yeah. Um, James Boswell is uh, goes on his one of his grand tours, right, and is incredibly impressed with Paoli. Uh, and this is during so Boswell does this in the 1760s, which is when Paoli has essentially successfully created a Corsican republic. Yeah, he. The, the Genoese would still claim control, but don't functionally exert any control over the island. Right. Well, hardly any control over the island. Especially few, outside of the few major towns. Exactly. Few yeah. urban centers that have degrees of uh, Genoese presence. But even there, it's functionally an independent nation at that point. Right. Uh, Rousseau writes a constitution for Corsica at this point. And I've done a little bit of work on this and kind of trying to gauge the extent to which when, when Rousseau is talking about a enlightened legislator, does probably fit that bill, right? And I, I think the answer is no, but I but I think there is some some question even for Rousseau is is like Rousseau says Corsica is the one place that my ideas can actually work, that the noble savage might exist. And right. There's a whole there's a whole other line of line of stuff we could talk about. Right. There, he but, does the same thing in Poland yep, too. Yep. Yeah. Um so, so Paoli is part of this uh, enlightened, you know, very much enlightenment move towards, you know, kind of a great figure in history, a great, great man in history, enlightened reader of all things, creates his own system of government. Um, and the Corsican people are relatively united in loving him. It's one of the few things that I would say, if you can kind of put a number on it, you know, we'll say 90% of Corsicans, maybe even more, agree, would agree that at the time that Paoli was all he's cracked up to be. Mm. That is rare, that they would agree on anything. Yeah. Um, so the question of how he becomes the father of the nation and, and how he actually gets that position is maybe a little bit too in the weeds, but he certainly does um, exert a great deal of influence, and mm. it's his image or it's his vision for Corsica that is for the most part promulgated and then he is unceremoniously kicked out of his uh, fatherly regime and uh, by the French yep. the French come in and buy the island rent what do we say yeah. rent they, yeah. it's, it's, it's a loaner. so technically they take it as security on a, 
on a loan. Yeah. And they know that the Genoese will never pay off yeah. the loan. Yeah. But and and Louis the Fifteenth is very careful not to call himself the King of Corsica. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but when they take Corsica in seventeen. When do they actually? When would the, What's the what's the battle? So 1768 is the treaty. 1769 is Ponte Novo. There's the last big flurry of insurgent activity in 1774. Yeah. But yeah, yeah basically in that five year period, they they control it in the way we recognize kind of the Weberian monopoly on yes. violence. Yeah. And probably is shipped off or shipped off. He ships himself off. Yeah, ships yeah. himself off to London where he gets into some hijinks and uh, is is ultimately. Sidelined because, and it's worth noting as well that during this period of French intervention in Corsica, it becomes a bit of a cause celebre in yep. in England, and the British government has to decide: Do we care enough to intervene mm-hmm. on an, on a governmental level? There's a lot of aid going into Corsica uh, by individuals. A lot of you know people are raising money and arms to send to the Corsican rebels against the tyrannical French. You know, that's great. But the British government opts to not officially intervene. And that's that's one of those paths not taken. Could yeah. they have? They, they probably could have legitimately decided to intervene there. It would have been a very different story. But they decide not to intervene. But they ha- there is there probably has a lot of friends in, in England. Um, and then he comes back in 89-90. Yeah, yeah and, and, and the the kind of the other path you mentioned. So Pauli leaves. His brother leaves as well. Mm-hmm. He said basically stays in Livorno and causes problems. Yeah. Uh, but the other path is the, the Bonaparte path, right? Yes. So the Bonaparte family comes up, and they're, I mean, they call themselves nobility. There's not really a nobility in Corsica, right? So Carlo and Letitia are the parents, and they have all these all these children. And Carlo immediately jurors to the French. He, he enters the French nobility. He sends his sons to French schools. Um, so... So, what is Carlo representative of in this twenty-year period between Pauli's departure and the Anglo-Corsican Kingdom? Right, and again, going back to that idea that Corsica cannot realistically survive on its own, and despite all of the trouble that they cause in trying to have a degree of autonomy and independence, uh, I think Carlo is the realist there that says we have to tie our tie our wagon to somebody, right? And why not the French? The French are here. That's that's not nothing, right? right. Uh, they right. are they are present. Uh, they there there's you can make the claim that the French are, are trying out versions of enlightened despotism. Uh, mm-hmm. You know they're not particularly predatory in Corsica. I won't say they're great, but you know I think uh, Pauli calls them a swarm of locusts. Yep. But uh, you know. Who doesn't? Uh, right, at some point. right, and and it's fair to point out what Pauli and a lot of Corsicans complained about was not the normal and uh, you know occupation things where the French are just taking. He was complaining about taxation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and really the Corsicans just don't want to be taxed. They don't. And in a uh, fun little point of in the Anglo-Corsican kingdom, there are no taxes collected. There are taxes levied. No taxes right. are collected for the entirety. I mean, it's a three-year period, so it's not like this huge sample size, but. The British never successfully collect taxes, especially from the interior, of course. Yeah. Which is interesting because the French do. It doesn't mm-hmm. offset the cost of the expedition, but they I want to say they pull something like 200,000 livres out of it mm-hmm. in 1770. Yeah, they, they do. And they do manage to actually go in and... And that's, again, one of these... Re- that's one of, the, one of the questions that really fascinates me about Corsica is what do you do when you're a big, big power, right? And you know that 
you don't have a lot going for you in this small place that doesn't really want you. I mean, again, we, I think we can easily draw parallels to our, you know, last 30 years of uh, experience. It's worth pointing out we are in San Diego staring at an American aircraft carrier right yeah, now. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, and so how do, you, how do you go in and exert soft power in a way that welcomes integration? And that, and to going back to the Bonaparte path, that's one of the one of the great ways to do that is to co-opt local elites and say, you know, you guys are, your success is our success, right? We're in this together. We're not trying to, you know, this is what the, the Genoese fail to do that because the Genoese import their own elites yes. and exploit the island. Yes. And the, the French really don't. They're not that bad at that. I'm not going to say there's no exploitation going on, but I think that's the Bonaparte path is integration through cooperation, especially among elites. Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out, we, we can often take a kind of jaundiced view, but even at the time, with the exception of taxation, the Corsicans were generally accepting of French rule. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't like it. They, didn't, they, of course, didn't want to pay taxes at all. They didn't like leaving their traditional kind of semi-migratory lifestyle, which the French forced them mm -hmm. to do. But in the end, the French, to the Corsicans, were much better than the Genoese. Who, they, they, they said the Genoese treated them like a colony. Yeah. And, and I mean, you, there's plenty of examples of just the French doing a decent job of, as decent of a job as you can in governing a recalcitrant, uh, unprofitable. That's one of the biggest questions is how do you, how do you, make this not just a, a time and money sink. Right. Uh, and there's a, so they, they don't do a bad job of that. And I think that the, the Bonaparte line of, of, of inquiry or line of uh, strategies is not a, not a bad one to consider. Though ultimately, right, Napoleon, while everyone else will call him Corsican, he kind of leaves that, leaves that behind after the, after, you know, 1792, I think, is when he's really pushed out of the island. He has big falling out with Pauli, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out, too, there's a, there's a certain irony here, right? Because the Corsicans are universal in hating the Genoese. There are very few Corsicans who, who even cooperate with the Genoese, right? And yet, they, they tend to prefer the French, where on one hand, you have Genoa, a republic, being mm, repressive, yeah. and the absolutist monarchy in France being relatively, we might even say, enlightened. Yeah. So there's a, yeah, there's a certain irony there. It, it is. And, and, I, and I think there's something to be said for deep-seated, long-term animosity that develops over, over a long period of time. Yeah. Right? That the Genoese had a lot of time to really screw things up with Corsica. Right. And the, the French, I mean, going even into the 19th and into the 20th centuries, it's, it's not fair to say that they forget about Corsica, right? That Corsica's still there, but they do not have a heavy hand. It's very laissez-faire, yeah, once they get it back. Yeah, yeah. and that's... Um, I think that's a good strategy, right? Is saying we, you know, you're 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 with us. There is if you try to revolt, right? If you try to break away, we will come down hard, right? Because we have to be clear that that's not okay. But other than that, right? You can have some this weird kind of dual department situation. Two A, two B is what it yeah. you know currently is, and. Um, for the record, going to research in Corsica is, is frustrating for that reason. <laughs> yeah, uh, but also fun because you get to yeah. go the breadth of breadth of the island. Uh, right. But yeah, and it's a it's an interesting um, it's an interesting kind of dichotomy because the, the the Corsicans argue the vendetta originated from the failure of the Genoese justice system mm -hmm. that they couldn't get justice in the courts, so they started killing each other. 
I don't know that that's entirely true because the vendetta exists in Sardinia and other parts of southern Italy, but that's they at least would argue that the Genoese contributed to that. And of course, the vendetta is the idea of what we recognize, like think Romeo and Juliet, right? It's you settle your own problems within the family, and usually lots of people die. Yeah, honor killings a lot yeah. of times, right? And, and that is one of the parts of Corsica that really fascinates me is these... Um, and this goes down to a, a completely different line of inquiry for me, but it's this... these the, It almost is a little bit of the Rousseauian noble savage, right? You mm-hmm. know, how much of that... You don't want to don't call them savages. don't even really want to call them noble by any stretch of the imagination. But there is a very communal-oriented... Uh, mindset in Corsica, and that's that's born from the environment. And that's you know, I gave a paper at the French Society for French Historical Studies a long time ago, but I got to talk about goats and how that was one of the flashpoints was that the Corsicans wanted to have their goats just roam free. Yeah, that's horrible for the environment in a lot of ways, and it's horrible for pro- being productive. Yeah. And, and you can't do a cadastral survey. Exactly. You know, it's it's not good for the French but the Corsicans say these are our goats like you can't force us to pin up our goats right Uh, the goats should be free right there's there's a lot of fun little little stuff that you can go on and and so there's this this question of is that a legitimate kind of alternative structure of society and state and relationship between people each other the environment and systems of governance and I mean, it's it's one of those almost quasi utopian type things, right? Do, yeah. do the Corsicans represent an alternative method of statecraft? Eh, right. Not not necessarily, but this question of did the Genoese fail, did the French succeed in in certain ways, really fascinates me just in terms of how the Corsicans, how how the Corsicans integrated into their own conception of family of state, uh, with a chapter that I wrote for this this uh, environmental history book, looks a lot at inheritance and the ways in which the French adjust the way inheritance happens and not fundamentally or cataclysmically right I'm not talking you know not not nothing huge but in pretty subtle ways that change the relationship between families to be much more oriented towards the state right much yeah. less oriented um, horizontally and much more vertical right and that, that that's a fascinating process that mm-hmm. how you break down some of those long-standing communal bonds and orient them more towards the state and less towards uh, oftentimes violent tendencies internally yeah and, and one of the things that I've discovered uh, reading Corsica is something the French have that we don't so often the word that's used to describe the Corsicans is insulares which we translate kind of as islanders but it doesn't really capture what the word means which as it implies it's inward looking mm-hmm. right yeah when I was in Corsica I stayed with this um, they were air traffic controllers great family uh, they, were, they, were, they were great people uh, but I remarked on how I was surprised at how little seafood I was having right I was, was an yeah. island nation they're like yeah, we Corsicans we are not ocean people yeah. we are mountain people yeah. right like we don't look out to the ocean we look inwards to yeah. our mountains yeah. that's how we do and what we do and yeah I, I it's thought that was almost a parallel yeah. with ireland yeah, yeah. It, there is and yes there that's a yeah there is so a uh, final question uh your title of course is professor of strategy and policy what is this case study of as you said a minor power stuck between larger powers what does it tell us kind of in the broadest possible Strokes. What what can we learn from this incident, series of incidents about strategy and policy? So I think there are. I have. I don't have a good answer there because well, I have two good answers that are maybe um, 
antithetical to each other, right? So on the one hand, what I want to say is that small powers have agency, right? And that you, I'm, I'm working on a piece right now on Montenegro in uh, Europe right now, like contemporary mm-hmm. Montenegro and how they fit into NATO. Um, so small powers have agency, even though they seem, they are legitimately very small. They don't have a lot of dime power, right? Diplomacy, information, military, economic. They don't have power on any of the dime spectrum, really. But you still have to pay attention to them. Right. They still can exert an, un, an inordinate amount of influence. And I think what the way I want to say that that happens with Corsica and even in our contemporary environment is that it's because everyone else is paying attention, right? If no one pays attention to the small powers, they don't actually have any power. Their attention is, or their power is um, because of observation almost, right? It's a little mm. bit of a Schrodinger's yeah. uh, box type of, right. of, of uh, or Schrodinger's cat type of uh, scenario where the power that they exert is because people are paying attention to them. And the more two great powers pay attention to a small power, mm-hmm. the more powerful that small state becomes. Mm-hmm. So that's one, I, I like that narrative, right? I think that's a really fun narrative. I think it gives agency to, I'm not gonna call them subaltern, but certainly to a, a, a small power agency. I love it. There is an alternative perspective, which is it just doesn't matter. Right, like that Corsica is that Corsica doesn't actually exert hardly any agency. Right, that they are, you know, we look at the the French in the 1760, late 1760s and 70s, when they want to take Corsica, they do. Right, why do the British fail? Well, the British fail because they're not committed to actually taking it and they find it very easy to just leave. Is it because the Corsicans force them to leave? No, it's because the French force them to leave. Right. Do the when the Corsicans invite them in? Is it because the Corsicans want them to be there? No, it's because the British want to be there, right? That there is very little actual agency of small powers, and that in in a world of you know tigers and lions, the mouse it's part of the ecosystem, but it's not really going to do much uh, to the to the lions and the tigers. So. I, I, I wrestle with those, right? And mm-hmm. I don't have a good, clean answer. I like the first one a lot better. But in kind of a realpolitik situation, especially if we look in our contemporary world and we say, all right, how much attention do we need to pay to small states and small powers? Um, I don't think we can ignore, just because we want the first answer to mm-hmm. be, that it feels better in a lot of ways, I don't think that we uh, can ignore the possibility that... Uh, go back to the Peloponnesian War, might makes right. right? Yeah, the, the strong a, do what they will, the weak do what they must. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I think we have to wrestle with that. I don't think that we can discard it. Even though that's not where I want to lean, mm-hmm. that's, that's the conversation that I have is, um, to, I get, does, do the Athenians lose the Peloponnesian War because mm-hmm. of Milos? Because right. they... And I, I think you can make you, you can make an argument they do, right? Thucydides does. So. Yeah, exactly, right? That they do alienate so many yeah. uh, potential allies by mistreating a small mm-hmm. power. And it, again, it takes on agency far greater than it probably should have. You can also make the argument that they lose because of the Sicilian campaign. They, you know, right. that Milos right. right. is just a it's it's just a fun a fun little example, but not doesn't actually have power. So I want to I'm going to be honest there. Yeah. That I think there is a. A duality that we need to wrestle with um, and you know yeah it's fun yeah it's a fascinating discussion Dr. Meeks thank you oh my pleasure I, I will talk about Corsica all day every day <laughs> uh, always fun 
Right, I'm here with Dr. Sarah Myers, Assistant Professor at Messiah University. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Dr. Myers, you study World War II broadly and the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, or the WASPs in general, right? So let's start over with a kind of a general overview. Uh, who are the WASPs? So the WASPs were a women's pilot program during World War II that basically it was a program merged from two different programs that started in 1942 and then became what's known now as the WASP. And so generally, I just talk about them as WASP. They were women who were replacing male pilots for certain responsibilities or assignments on the home front so that more male pilots could be sent into combat. So they had like the same basic training as men, minus combat training, and then they also, you know, had assignments on over 150 Air Force bases across the United States during the war. Okay, so about how many are we talking about? Uh, like almost 1,100, maybe a little under. So are these uh, women who were pilots before the war, are they women who are being taken in and trained kind of from scratch, or what? So the early rounds of women who entered the program, they had a lot of pilot experience. So they had maybe like hundreds if not thousands of flying hours and typically came from like wealthier families because they could afford it. But then later in the war you see women coming into the program. You had to have a certain number of flying hours, but the women coming into the program were typically trained under a New Deal um, US federal government program that was called um, the Civilian Pilot Training Program. And those programs trained one woman for every 10 men up through, from basically 1939 through December 1941. And then once we enter the war, then women are no longer admitted. But the women entering the WASP, uh, because they have to have flying hours, are primarily coming from those programs. So is this a deliberate ratio, this 10 to 1? So it's, it's not, that's not the accidental ratio. They were actually seeking out women to bring into the program. It was a deliberate ratio that was only incorporated because of the work of Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the first lady at the time, who had campaigned on like women pilots' behalf because of what she saw women doing overseas. And so there wasn't a requirement that they had to have one woman for every 10 men, but that's how many were, that was like the maximum number that were allowed to be admitted. Okay. So you, you mentioned that there is a kind of a background here, right? Because, because flight and pilot culture grows quickly in the interwar period. Um, and we're, we're probably all familiar with the, the image of Amelia Earhart, right? So who is the female pilot before World War II? Yeah, so the female pilot before World War II is a typically a like barnstormer who is, you know, using her like extra money that she has either from her family because she has to have money so she's interested in doing things that are non-conventional for women at the time and pushing gender boundaries i liken them to like the modern girl of the 1920s because they very much are like flight is the future for women you know we have free like we have liberation and freedom in the air so it's like a different like you know for women and so they are honestly just having fun and feel like flying is adventurous and they don't really have a lot of other goals with it. Some of them want to have like careers in aviation, um, but in general, a lot of them are just flying because they think it's fun. So as you mentioned, there is an explicitly what we might recognize as feminist strain to this idea of the early female pilots. Yes, but I would hesitate to use that word for my wasp because when they're like, so the women who are in the Army Air Force 
do not get military status until the 1970s and they like fight actively for it in the 60s during the time of women's liberation and they most of them talk about how much they are opposed to the word feminist and don't consider themselves to be feminists but yet like Amelia Earhart considered herself to be a feminist and lots of the women who were in the early waves of the wasp they were friends with Amelia Earhart so even though later in life they don't want to claim the title they're mm-hmm. still yeah which is a not unnatural progression, right? Some yes. people often age into more conservative ideologies. Yeah, and I also think a part of it is because there's you want to get like congressional support for your bill to get military status. So you don't want to alienate any politicians. So maybe we should avoid saying certain things, and mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Uh, it makes a certain amount of sense. Uh-huh. So we have this image of Amelia Earhart as being kind of this. She's a pioneer, but she's also a pioneer in other ways, right? She's She's certainly gender atypical and, and seems less concerned with expressing gender than contemporaries. Um, is she the type or is she the exception for these, for these women pilots? That's a really great question. I think that I would argue that she... Okay, so I'm hesitant to say she's a type because some of the WASP didn't think that she had the same level of technical skills that they did so in terms of like professionally they thought they were better pilots than her and I don't think that's just because she crashed fatally either mm-hmm. right uh, but in terms of pressing like gender norms for the time period I would argue yes because a lot of them were like we're not interested in being and like I went to college and my professors or my advisors were like oh you can be a nurse you can be a teacher and they're like that sounds terrible to me I don't want to do have anything to do with that so mm-hmm. yes in the sense of carving out a different professional space for themselves yeah it's so you you bring up something uh, that's also very interesting kind of in this this broader spectrum um, these these almost exclusively pre-war women of privilege right yeah. Uh, and the early pilots are people who often had to repair their own planes. You know, they might have to land in a field and, and sort these kinds of things out. So, how did these uh, these these women of privilege and people of privilege too? Because the the men are not all that different. So, how do these people of privilege deal with the kind of you know uh, it might say in military history the muddy boots aspect of this, where you might have to land in a field in Iowa and, and repair your own engine. They seem to adapt to it pretty well. They are there are a lot of early women pilots that talk about you know repairing their own planes or who talk about uh, honestly working as mechanics for other pilots' planes to make money to then get flying hours and things like that. Um, especially when you see like the the wasp like training in Sweetwater, Texas, which is, like windy, sandy, dusty, honestly gross um, from personally living there. There are like many discussions about. How it's like rigorous and grueling and like very unglamorous flying, and yet they are willing to take that in exchange for flying military aircraft. So they mm-hmm. seem to, yeah, not go by those like class conventions essentially. So when you say flying military aircraft, before they get into the program, what are they flying and to what end beyond just kind of leisure flying? I mean, besides, they're flying very small, like, biplanes, because military flying is much more exciting for them because the planes are larger, heavier aircraft, right? Uh, or, like, pursuit that are really fun to fly and fly faster. Uh, but the, the biplanes and the planes that they're flying in the pre-war days, there were some women who volunteered to fly for 
um, the military during World War One, but they were turned down. Um, there are some women who fly with the mail service for a brief period of time. Uh, there are women who try to get jobs in other ways, especially when like commercial aviation is like kind of being a thing before World War Two. But commercial airlines aren't interested in like women pilots, so mostly it's air shows that are entertainment for the American public where you're performing stunts and honestly just like entertaining people but also convincing them. Um, Joseph Korn writes a book about this where he talks about you know you're teaching the public that like flying is safe especially mm -hmm. when you have female pilots flying in these air shows which makes the American public more comfortable with aviation and then that's what a lot of people at the time see as like the future for the you know, world and mm -hmm. they, the early barnstormers thought that we would all have a an airplane with a hangar attached to our house, not a car in a mm -hmm. garage. They'd be really disappointed in us. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so the 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 near contemporary that immediately springs to mind is somebody like an Annie Oakley. Um, are these these female barnstormers? Are they put on the marquee, or are they just at the show? Okay, that's a really good question because it. So sometimes they're a part of the show, but a lot of times they're put on the marquee as an attention grabbing because because it's so unique for women. I mean, like Amelia Earhart, for example, wore pants. Right? Yeah. Her fashion that's crazy to people at the time period, right? Mm -hmm. For women to wear pants in public, and so insert dramatic gasp here. <laughs> so they're just like, yeah, the public is interested because they're mm -hmm. like, what women are flying? Like, what are they? What are mm -hmm. they doing? And and they're like. Even Wasp, who talked about, like, in the days before the war, that they would dress up like old women and pretend to be, like, elderly and then get up and do stunts. And so they're kind of playing on stereotypes about, yeah, mm -hmm. all of this. Yeah, and I think another aspect of this um, worth talking about is the, the, the reaction against the idea of female pilots. So we know, in particular in American history, there's a long... Uh, long-standing social belief against women in the public sphere, particularly in the 20th century. Beyond that, beyond kind of the inherent anti-woman um, sense in society, what else is driving the desire to keep women out of cockpits? So a part of it is a military-driven argument. So aviation's not really that effective when you're thinking about like World War One combat and things like that right because we have lots of technology to develop and things like that and yeah and when you think about that there's still men who are pilots that in the army who are talking about like how they want this to be a field just for, for them um, but then you also just have people who want to reinforce like social norms and even people who aren't pilots that the you know these women talk about how they're like confronting stereotypes about themselves and trying to like convince the public that what they're doing is like worthwhile or prevention or like professional there were there were some women who would um, participate in like air schools right like where they're training and serving as flight instructors or trying to serve as flight instructors but again like it's just kind of like with any other field even with like professional driving or like women driving car like you know civilian cars things like that you still have people that like think women should only be in certain fields or areas just because of you know what this will do to gender norms mm -hmm. 
And you earlier brought up one of the great people of the age, Eleanor Roosevelt. So what is what is Eleanor's role in promoting the cause of women in the period and the cause of female pilots in particular? Yeah, so when the war starts in Europe, she she writes this like syndicated column called My Day that's published in newspapers across the country. And she wrote in one of these early columns about, you know, we need to use women. They're a weapon waiting to be used. They're being used in Germany and Russia and Britain. So, you know, what are we doing kind of thing? And her, you know, speaking out on this one doesn't really, like, do anything at first. But later, through, like, two women pilots, Jackie Cochran and Nancy Love, who most Americans now don't know but were really popular during the time period, they have these political connections within both the U.S. government and in the military. And so through those connections, and even Jackie Cochran is, like, friends with the Roosevelts, those sort of connections, you know, remind people basically of Eleanor Roosevelt's campaigning and and kind of use that as a little bit of political leverage. And am I remembering correctly that, that Eleanor was a pilot herself, or she... She did fly with pilots, but she wasn't a pilot herself. Okay. She was friends with Amelia Earhart. Um, she also was friends, not friends with, um, she helped get the Tuskegee Airmen accepted as a part, like, basically to get them incorporated into combat during World War II. So she flew with um, Charles Anderson, one of the, yeah. like, you know, people of that field, one of the officers of that field. And that public image of her in an airplane with him was one that, like, even now I think a lot of Americans have seen that photograph because she's trying to use her image as a white woman to be like, hey, it's safe, you know, and also Mm -hmm. use these men in combat. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've got a a good kind of grasp of the, the, the kind of lead up. So the war starts in, you know, 37, 39, however you want to periodize it. And Franklin Roosevelt very clearly wants the United States to get involved. We can't until Pearl Harbor. So how do these kind of um, professional activist or hobby pilots, how do they then transition into being, let's say, military adjacent? Yeah. A lot of that has to do with that New Deal program that's the Civilian Pilot Training Program that Roosevelt starts in 1939. It's the creation of it, it's intended to encourage men to enter the Army Air Force at the time. They obviously do not intend for women to enter the Army Air Force, um, but the idea is to get male pilots like thinking about this, because even some male pilots who just have like flying hours will enter the program to get specialized training, and so it's a way to kind of groom pilots, if you will, for thinking about the military as a career and opportunity, um, and so they very much use that. And I mean, obviously, just like you mentioned Amelia Earhart, a lot of male pilots reference Charles Lindbergh as a like basically combining their love and interest of flight with serving the nation. Mm-hmm. All right, so it's now Pearl Harbor. How does this kind of civilian military looking agency, how does that then become part of the national war establishment? Yeah, so then once you enter the program, um, they add on this like title or program title, if you will, War Training Service. So the Civilian Pilot Training Program now becomes specific with you are entering like the military by your free mm-hmm. training that we're giving you. Uh, for women pilot programs, uh, Jackie Cochran and Nancy Love had actually asked at the beginning of the war, um, for the U.S., that is, 41, 
for women pilots to be incorporated and they're declined until early 1942 and then this is when women like get their programs but that's kind of how their things are so explain for for those of us who are not as um focused on modern history we have women's organizations in the u.s military the wasps the wax the waves and others so where do they fit in the military? Are they military? Are they next to the military? How does that work? They are military adjacent. They're basically the only women's unit during World War II that Congress does not grant military status, which means that their status was as civilian. So even though they are trained with literal Army Air Force training, they follow rules and regulations of the Army Air Force. They train on, you know, serve on bases and assignments. They're issued uniforms, they're issued dog tags. They take the oath, all the typical stuff. Um, they are still not allowed to be in the military because literally Congress could decide via bills. And so the congressional bill um, with the WASP was the last to go up before Congress in the summer of 1944. And when that failed, then that meant that the women were, you know, civilian for the 38 women that died during the war. They are not allowed to have military funerals or benefits. It, women, even when they're injured or sick, have to use their civilian insurance because they're still considered civilians. And so you have this weird situation where they're following army rules and regulations and you know, basically military in every sense of the word, but are um, civilian when it comes to benefits or things with like health and insurance and things mm -hmm. like that. So, how does the program grow from these, again, largely people of privilege to uh, taking in larger numbers? How do we get to that 1100 number you quoted earlier? Yeah, so they basically have to eventually lower the number of flying hours as a prerequisite to the program. The same thing actually happens for male pilots too. Um, and the reason, again, is just because the availability, right? And so they lower the number down as low as like 35 flying hours, which allows them to admit larger numbers of women into the program. There are quite a few women who apply for the program, but unless you have those flying hours, you're just immediately rejected. Mm -hmm. They also rejected based on race because they only admitted women who they believed could pass as white, too. Interesting. So... We have these 1,100 women who, uh, over the course of the war, are WASPs. Who is the WASP? Who does the the uh, War Department look for to become a WASP beyond just having uh, flying hours and the, the right uh, skin tone? Um, and and what is that? What is that training like? So they have their their training is different than male pilots because they have the primary, basic, and advanced, all phases of training are at one base in Sweetwater, Texas. And so they're, they originally train at Houston, but are quickly moved to Sweetwater. And so when they are training there, um, the WASP looks like a woman who wants to be a professional pilot. That's why she's entered the military. She has the same motivations as men because men talk about, you know, sometimes they join for revenge. And so they're WASP who talk about, I literally joined because my brother was killed and I wanted revenge. And, things like this. Um, so they have like the same motivations. And then they're, they come from all over the country in all different like classes, you know, class status and things like that. And there are some women of color. They're just not um, black women and they're women who they assumed could pass as white. So we have some indigenous women. There are some 
that are uh, Chinese American um, and some Mexican American women as well. And in the interviews, to become a WASP, you have to have the flying hours, fill out your you know application, whatever, get your physical. It, they have face-to-face interviews. This was to screen for partially for race, but also in the interviews, the the people who are conducting these interviews for the Army Air Force talk about the women's appearance, which I find really interesting. And so the WASP also needed to be a woman who essentially looked like the girl next door, kind of like um, Kara Dixon Buick has a a book literally with that title um, where she talks about like women and entertainment and things like that but they're literally like supposed to be somewhat conventionally attractive in mm-hmm. the way that you know if there are images of them in the American public that the media will like view them in a favorable light was the way that it was discussed and it's fair to assume these standards don't exist for male pilots that is correct yep. <laughs> so they're, what what are these wasps actually doing? Obviously, they're flying, but specifically, what are they flying and why? So they fly. Uh, each individual wasp does not fly every type of aircraft, right? Because you have to be, um, you know, go through training per each aircraft. But they're flying every type of aircraft available. Um, they are on U.S. Air Force bases. They're doing the most, like the largest number of them, are ferrying which is taking a plane literally across the country to wherever it needs to go, from factories to bases, you know, bases to the coast to go overseas. Then they are entered into an experimental role that quite a large number of them hold during the war, which is towing targets, where they literally fly in the air the same out, at the same altitude, the same pattern, and male cadets on the ground practice anti-aircraft artillery and shoot targets, you know, shoot anti-aircraft artillery at their targets that they have hooked by cables to the back of their plane, things like that. And then they're also serving as instructors, so they're teaching male pilots, and they are um, also test pilots, a very small number of them. So there's actually one woman that got to work on uh, jet testing, which was very new at the time period. So, how did the male cadet pilots react to having a female instructor? It was a range of reactions. So, some of, there are, like, the way that we get at this is through, like, oral history interviews with the WASP, but also through Army Air Force records where there are reports from commanding officers at bases, but then also they had to write reports for, like, regions of the United States as well. In these reports and oral history interviews, you get everything from the women felt like they had to prove themselves, right? So they had to, like, show that they were competent, and then that meant, like, oh, now I'm respected because I'm right. competent. But also there are women who talk about, like, how men were just, like, openly hostile for, like, the majority of their training. And then you all alternately have bases where commanding officers are like, there was no problem with the transition of women here. Like, everybody just accepted it. And so... I mean, if you want to go to, like, all the extremes, there are also some uh, women and men later who get married because they met while <laughs> training, so... Go figure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, they're ferrying, as you said, and, and doing other duties. Um, do these two duties take them outside the continental United States ever? The only time is there are a few women who got to fly ferry some planes into Canada, and there are a few that ferried aircraft to Cuba and Puerto Rico, but there are just a handful of times that that happened, and then that's it. The Army Air Force made the intentional decision because it was discussed, like, you know, maybe we could have them ferry planes across the Atlantic to England, right? And there's like a large air transport auxiliary there that can take it from there. 
But General Arnold, uh, the commanding general of the Army Air Force, said no, because if a woman dies over an ocean, for whatever reason, he thought that would be really bad PR. And so he just didn't want anything to disrupt the program, and so was, the decision was made not to allow that to happen. And you also mentioned that I believe the number was 37 died? 38. 38 died in service. So, so are these just crashes, or...? It was a range, so some of them are listed as like a mechanical failure, so you have like an engine failure or something specific. Uh, for some of them, it is listed as like pilot error, so they'll say things like, you know, I mean, it's not always the pilot error as in the WASP either, because some of the WASP during training are with an instructor and it will be like the male instructor, right? Or sometimes it was the female pilot and they'll like explain like, oh, this is what happened. Or sometimes it is the person at the base, like the control tower, who is, you know, in one instance giving the incorrect instructions to aircraft landing at the field and they literally just like land on top of each other. And so they crash and, you know, is fatal accident obviously and so there's just like kind of a range of mm -hmm. descriptions given for reasons why so uh, if people are familiar with the wasps they're probably familiar with the photograph of the four of them in their flight jackets with the plane behind them so w who are those wasps and what's happening in that photograph so there yes that photo is literally used for everything <laughs> like so many books and yes uh, these the four women I don't have their names off the top of my head but this is a like staged photo mm -hmm. that is meant for like uh, basically like the Army Air Force allowed the media to take staged photos of the wasp to kind of control what's talked about in the media and things like this so it's just like a staged photograph basically mm -hmm. um, theoretically they are ferrying either coming from a ferrying mission or headed towards one yeah mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the idea, at least, was to try to convey, you know, the reason we make Top Gun movies, right? That we like fighter pilots. Um, did did that succeed? Did that photograph have any impact at the time, or is it just the book cover photo now? Just the book cover photo now. The American public largely did not know about the WASP. A part of that is because, you know, it is quite a small number of women, um, but also because the Army Air Force was very strict about what was allowed into the media about these women pilots. And so the, basically the Women's Army Corps had lots of slander campaigns against them and they wanted to avoid this. And so they're like, we're gonna do things differently. And so you get like, yes, staged photographs of them that are in things that are published in the media, but largely like it doesn't, it doesn't even have an impact on recruitment. There mm -hmm. aren't any women who are like, oh, I saw a photograph, you know, and I decided to join. It's, mm -hmm. yeah. So we didn't do like we did with the Tuskegee Airmen where we made posters around them. So there wasn't no, and there was actually an intentional decision not to allow WASP, specifically that title, to be on any recruitment. So the WACs, Women Marines, Waves, etc. are, and then sometimes these like ad campaigns would put like, a like ambiguous female pilot on there, but it wouldn't say WASP or Army Air Force or anything like that because they weren't allowed to. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Right, so these these women clearly are pioneers, um, although pioneers for a cause that would not pay off for a very long time. Right. It's only within the last ten years that the U.S. military has fully opened all job all, all combat jobs to to um, uh, non males. Um, so what, what is their legacy? What is the legacy of the WASPs? So the women who have served as, like in a lot of the like 
verse, so like the first female Thunderbird pilot, things like that, they reference the wasp um, sometimes literally on their uniforms, like they'll have a patch that mimics one of the patches that the wasp wore, um, but they'll also talk about how they feel inspired and see these women as like the precursors to them, kind of like a nod of acknowledgement, which I find really interesting because, like I said, for a long time people didn't really know about them. And right. so there's that. And then at the same time, there's sort of like this lack of legacy, if you will, in like popular memory about them, but also in terms of the discussions of women's incorporation into the military's pilots in the 1970s looks similar in many ways to the discussion in the 1940s as though the 1940s had never happened kind of thing right and even like the media's reactions are very much so in that sense it feels like there isn't one Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting it's almost like it was a retroactive campaign that paid off decades later Mm -hmm. yeah very interesting dr myers thank you thank you so much All right, we are here with Dr. Caleb Cargus, Associate Professor of History at Concordia University. Dr. Cargus, welcome. Hey, good to be here. As well as Dr. Mark Danley, a history PhD librarian and instructor of uh, history and, and library things at various places. Dr. Danley, welcome. Thank you, glad to be here as well. So uh, all three of us are, are 18th and, and perhaps late 17th century historians in some way, um, in different different um, research areas and time periods, but all kind of within that broad spectrum. Um, so let's go ahead and start uh, with just kind of the general overview of where um, late 17th and especially 18th century studies are right now. So where do you guys think they are right now? Well, um, I, I actually did my PhD over in Britain. So I can speak to um, what's been going on in the United Kingdom and even Europe. and the. The field is actually still going strong. Mm-hmm. Um, you, what's been interesting over there is there has been a distinct shift to studying financiers. Um, sadly, our other esteemed colleague Michael Martocchio isn't here, but he's he was a part of a big project coming out of Oxford that was looking at finances, um, f- what they call fiscal military hubs, kind of like looking at cities as um, major areas where. Um, or you could get war material. Mm-hmm. Um, in the uh, the case of Europe, you have guys matching cultural history. You got um, people with these kind of European Union funding who are able to just like really get down into the weeds. Yeah. And part of it too is there's been a flowering thanks to the EU and you could say U.S. hegemony, um, <laughs> because now you're starting to see scholars across. Um, going across language barriers. And one part of it is just the, uh, the final adoption of English as a lingua franca. And the other part of it is um, the growth of really good translation software and translation uh, resources, whether it's Google Translate. I heard in Germany everybody uses Deeple. Mm. And so you're able to have access to way more scholarship than you used to because kind of... Um, when you look at uh, the scholarship going back into the 19th century, 19th century, 20th century, is it tended to silo off by language and national group. Mm-hmm. And then when you throw the Cold War in there, just like there's a whole half of Europe that's just 
ignored because nobody could get to the archives. Right. And since the 1990s, and um, people have had more, like we've been able to bring Poland back in and Hungary much more into the uh, the mm-hmm. discussion, and even even Russia. So that's what I see from my side. What about you, Mark? Well, just to kind of uh, uh, compliment your, your observations there that, that I agree with, you know, International Commission on Military History uh, did a lot to, even during the Cold War era, did a lot to, to foster that kind of uh, uh, cross-national uh, comparative work. And whenever you talk about, you know, talk about it in the term I just gave, that's really fraught when you deal with the 18th century because those those silos that you're you're rightfully mentioning, they're all based on categories that the 18th century people that we study mm-hmm. did not really, right. yeah, uh, did, did, did not really accept. Mm-hmm. And the 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 question, the the prompt here is, what's the state of 18th century studies now? It appears that we mean the study of 18th century warfare. But you did ask, what's the state of 18th century studies? Yeah. So uh, I, I will I will answer it as, as posed. Yeah. And, you know, the, the 18th century studies field broadly, uh, uh, at least in the, the English-speaking world, um, has been oriented, at least since I got into it in the 1990s, has been oriented really towards literature and art. Uh, the, the historians involved, well, I actually, that's actually not fair to say, that, that it was the humanities, but principally literature, history, and, and art, and art history. But the historical component of that was, uh, although willing to think about issues of armed conflict, uh, there was less of a a uh, willingness to engage with traditional operational military history in a way that sometimes you know the scholar would need to at least be literate in that mm-hmm. to to do what they you know, you know to to meet their objective and if they were you know examining something about uh, uh, you know some uh, identity um, uh, expression uh, in in the 18th century world as war would affect that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the field would still still has a way to go and would still benefit maybe from integrating 18th century military history mm-hmm. better with 18th century studies more broadly. Um, I, I don't want to kind of come out of the gate negative on that because <laughs> I think that anytime that that two uh, or that anytime multiple constituencies within an, within an area of study aren't talking to each other but they should, then uh, I, you know, rather than look at that negatively, I think we should look at that as an opportunity. Yep, definitely. But definitely. Yeah. I, I am usually at most uh, professional conferences or interactions, the only 18th the only historian of 18th century warfare mm-hmm. who knows or cares anything about the history of books and reading. And I am often in, say, for example, Society of, Hist- of History of Authorship, Reading, and Publishing, or any type of book history related, or bibliography, or library information science uh, uh, endeavor, the only person among the 18th century scholars who cares anything about military history and warfare. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I think that, uh, you know, while I've kind of uh, uh, 
hijacked your your question <laughs> to become part of my own hobby horse. It's uh, all right. Uh, I, I think that that's an area where um, the the field still, you know, ha has some work to do. Um, uh, but um, I, you know, want to uh, you know tip my hat to Bibliographical Society of America that uh, almost ten years ago now actually did put their money where their mouth is and did a joint panel uh, with Society of Military History hmm. and. Uh, that, that occurred a while ago, but it would be good to kind of build on that. And I think 18th century studies and the study of 18th century warfare could, mm -hmm. could benefit from talking more widely to, you know, the other people that deal with uh, what human beings experienced during that interesting period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's been some work on that. Like, um, well, to your point about reading and military history, we yesterday we had the privilege of sitting in on a panel. I think, was it Hugh Davies who did... A, he's at King's College London did a yes. piece on how Henry Clinton Sir Henry Clinton, General Sir Henry Clinton was um, reading and reflecting on military histories and military treatises in this time period and he's found, like this guy kept his cool little journals and um, it inspired me I'm like, oh wait, I, I've been starting to do that and I find this really helpful I saw that actually uh, Dr. Abel here does the same thing mm -hmm. um, we we uh, um, to the point more broadly too, I think uh, one of the things that has been Mark and I's kind of hobby horse, and I know Jeremy Black over yes. at Exeter has been on this, is actually trying to create a more holistic global view. Oh yeah, of the 18th I, I, century. yeah I really want to see that happen. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, well Alex Mika breaks it too for the Napoleonic period. Yeah, that that has that has got to happen because for I mean it, it's getting better. Mm -hmm. But I'm telling you, for a long time, the the people who studied the American Revolution were not only willfully ignorant about the broader contours of 18th century Britain, mm -hmm. but just, you know, a lot of them were saying, well, I don't need to know that. You know, and they would back it up with American exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, again, I don't want to be, I don't want to uh, speak about that in an overly harsh way because when I went to grad school I was also encouraged by a lot of scholars to say well yeah sure you have to know about 18th century Britain from the from the, the, the British perspective the Irish perspective the Scottish perspective the continental perspective what did everybody else think about it mm -hmm. the, the Anglo-American colonial world was not homogeneous mm -hmm. and I think uh, your paper yesterday illustrated another what I'll admit is a hole in my swing I know very little about the French in India and you don't see a lot of the um, kind of the crossover between the colonial historiography and the metropolitan historiography uh, particularly in, the, in military affairs um, at least within within French studies I don't yeah. know I don't know if you guys have seen that in in the fields you work in well I mean working in Austrian studies there's just like nothing yeah, yeah. Uh, because well, the Austrians didn't really do much. Although um, there, there was a scholar, uh, I think Madalina Verez, Verez. Uh, yeah. Forgive me, Madalina, if you're listening to this and I said your name wrong. Um, she, she's done some work on like the Ostend Company and actually some Habsburg attempts in the 18th century to um, establish some factories in India yeah. and along, um, yeah, along the African coast. And it actually, in her work, it ties to the military because she's you know firmly in the enlightenment era era and map making cartography 
that's all an important aspect of this. Mm -hmm. So Austrian officers are going along these expeditions because they need somebody to make maps. Yep. Yeah. Um, and like, I I kind of also think the transnational turn has helped mm -hmm. because what we're finding is all these people who just allow who just go across what we would see as national borders. Mm -hmm. But even in the military history. We, we've known this for a long time. Like, you look at a guy like Prince Eugene of Savoy. Right. An Italian yes. nobleman who grew up in Versailles, mm -hmm. who then becomes the greatest Austrian commander. Heck, there was, you know, right. German battleships, SS divisions named after him. Right. Well, Maurice de Saxe, another one, right? Yeah. Yes. German. Yeah. Great example. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it's but a, we know he was awesome. Yes. <laughs> and that, the thing that I think, the thing that I think you guys are bringing out really well is... Uh, one of the things that is an unfortunate casualty of the largely, I think we can say, past um, antipathy between military and non-military historians is the idea of the officer corps as a transnational body. And it's a, it's a body of people who regularly travel and who are probably the best educated about other cultures and peoples and countries and nations and institutions. Uh, but it's not often posited that way, particularly as, as you mentioned, Arcargus, outside of these national silos. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very interesting thing that probably needs more work. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is, these guys are not just well-educated, they got a lot of money, and yeah. they use it, they're, they're art collectors, they're patrons. They're book collectors. Yeah, they're yeah. private libraries. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Uh, what's the, was it uh, Voyeur? One of the Argensons, when he donates his library to the state, it's the largest library, I think, in Western Europe. Oh, interesting. And he's the former yeah. war minister. Yeah, I, I mean, that there's... I'm, uh, you know, really uh, energized by, by those kind of observations because it's a perfect uh, way to connect the history of books reading and the history of libraries mm -hmm. uh, to the history of armed conflict that, that, that we need to do. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes... The categories and the categorization of how we think that are imposed by our academic disciplines, most of which are barely 150 years old, mm -hmm. if even that, uh, I think have uh, uh, kind of channeled us in, in directions that, that uh, are more isolating and that we don't really want to go. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I was intrigued by, you know, uh, Dr. Cargus here mentioning uh, the Austin Company in their relation in their connections in Africa, mm -hmm. and the one area of the study of 18th century warfare where I think there really needs to be um, uh, an effort by scholars to rethink their categories is in the military history of the African diaspora. I have always wondered why the history of armed resistance of enslaved people to slavery is not understood in the way that we, as part of our study of irregular warfare, mm -hmm. in the study of uh, our study as 18th century military historians of how non-state polities use, use, use warfare. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, going back into the 17th century, you know, Quilombos in, in Brazil, why would I, as an early modern military historian, not study that as part of your regular warfare? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think, you know, with, uh, with, with Dr. Cargis, with your work, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're looking at uh, you know Spanish Florida. You can't avoid you know the 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 military history of of your regular warfare. Yeah, and yeah. of African people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I think you guys. I think you say something very important, and and I I, I think what is often incumbent in these discussions is that the the agency of the people and the places being colonized is often removed, right? Yes. So in a way, the, the historiography recolonizes them by making them either victims uh, or making them a colonial resource. Yeah, yes. resource or just kind of like the um, unthinking agents carrying yeah. out the will of the metropole. Yes. Right, or against the metropole. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of what you find is things get real complicated when you start looking at what's going on the ground mm-hmm. in the colonies because you got to remember like in North America you're you're 3 months out it, there's such an information lag that these guys just kind of have to make decisions on their own mm-hmm. um this is where i find kind of like what you were talking about mark um it's where we develop these new concepts that allow us to kind of continue to breaking to break the categories oh, yeah. that we've been saddled with mm-hmm. and or, or at least questioned yeah mm-hmm. one of the things that I find uh, one of my hobby horses is actually grand strategy mm-hmm. and grand strategic studies because uh, it might be ana- it is anachronistic to say that these guys are conducting grand strategy although you look at it and you're like they're clearly doing it but they don't have the category for it yeah because it's a 20th century concept mm-hmm. I'd say but, the operational the yeah, operational yeah. level of war mm-hmm. but yeah they, they have the category yeah the the thing is though when you approach things from a grand strategic perspective you find that you actually have to take into account a lot more than just say purely military affairs and so mm-hmm. on and i remember a student exclaiming to me like dr cargus you have to know everything <laughs> like yeah you you have to know everything you need mm-hmm. to think about like the science at the time you need to yeah. think about the economy and the trade and Society and culture, yeah, yeah, and it allows you to you know get this more holistic view, and suddenly you feel like you're playing Age of Empires all over. Yeah, yeah. one one of the things I loved about the work of Fred Anderson, particularly Crucible of War, I'm getting at what you were you delivered your paper on yesterday, Dr. Cargus, was Mm -hmm. the idea that we took the agency of the Iroquois away, and if you return the agency to the Iroquois, what you what you have instead of the two. French and English in the in the, the what's called in America the, the French and Indian War. Instead, you have three major players, mm-hmm. and you can make an argument: the Iroquois are the great winners of that war that they quickly then lose in the next war. Uh, and but that was a fascinating way of recasting a war that has been written about in exhaustive mm-hmm. detail, but no one had looked at it from that perspective. Oh, you said French and Indian War. <laughs> I, I don't think there was such a thing. I, I I've. Uh, uh, and, I, and I've, I've made my, my argument about mm-hmm. this and, you know, uh, things I've, I've published mm-hmm. and put out there. But I, I think ev- I think that term alone encourages us to kind of, you know, sort into categories that really don't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, back but, into silos. It, yeah. Well, but, you know, okay, so, but, right, why that silo? Mm-hmm. Um, so how about the um, Lenape and European War? Why, 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 why French and Indian War? Mm-hmm. Why, why does like one set of belligerents get lumped into the to the broader category, mm-hmm. and then 
another belligerent get pulled out. Okay, mm-hmm. so so no, I know I I'm gonna pull out the Lenape. Well, it, and everybody at London, yeah. so the Lenape and European war. It's it's the long American tradition of naming wars after whoever you fought. You know the French and Indian War. Then of course the American Revolution. We don't believe we're incredibly revolutionary, but then you know you have the the Mexican War. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a southerner, the War of the Northern Aggression. I remember having a discussion with somebody about this. It was, it was strange. But even, <laughs> yeah, um, one there. <laughs> but even like in the colonial period, they they kind of like throw it off onto the kings. Yeah. They're like yeah. King George's War, Queen Anne's War, Queen King William's War. Like this isn't our, our. It was started by them, but we, yeah, you know, we right. fought it. I thought it was actually really interesting in the panel. Um, nobody challenged me on referring to the conflict over in the New World as the War of the Spanish Succession rather than Queen Anne's War. And well, I'm glad they didn't. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. I think that, uh, you know, talking about the state of the field, you know, we have fortunately gotten away from the, the, uh, the myopia of the, you know, American mm-hmm. colonial experience, you know, Anglo-America-centric. Mm-hmm. You know, where everything has to be defined, you know, like by calling them Queen Anne's War and, yeah. and, and King George's War. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I understand that in the, the American, you know, American memory, we named the war after whoever, uh, you know, uh, the United States or its antecedents fought. But even if you're going to do that, okay, if you want to do that, then, then name all the belligerents. And then mm-hmm. you're going to have a war with a name that's, that, that's too right. long. Yeah, right. Uh, but with the... Uh, with the native peoples of North America that were involved in that conflict, you know, I try to to remember and act upon the fact that those those policies have successor governments that are in our country today mm-hmm. that are sovereign entities. So if if I'm doing something on the Seven Years' War, and you know, there, I mean, the the France. You know the Bourbon monarchy that fought the Seven Years' War is not the same France as today. Mm-hmm. But if the if uh, if the uh, you know somebody in, in in France put out an official history, we would probably take it for granted that we should at least look at that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Cher- there, there's you know there's there's three Cherokee Cherokee politics. Mm-hmm. One of them Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. Does not, it's not does not quite have a published official history, but their their government website on the cultural and historical part of it mm-hmm. has a thing about you know Cherokee history, and it says they say we think this survey history of the Cherokee Nation is particularly good, and we would you know recommend that you consider starting there. Mm-hmm. So why do I not apply the same logic to to that government? Today, why do I not look and say, "Well, that's an official history, and I should look mm-hmm. at that"? And I think with um, uh, uh, with studying uh, the interactions between uh, people of European descent, African people, mm-hmm. people of African descent, and the native peoples, the indigenous peoples of North America, in conflict during the 18th century, I think we ought to we ought to um, not uh, privilege the authority of some sources uh, over the others in, um, in, in, in ways that I think are, are, are kind of uh, unintentional. I think we have to be very careful about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
you know, you, you mentioned the, the work that Fred Anderson did, but I think there's 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 a ways to go there in engaging the 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 cultural and historical uh, authorities in those in the, the the successor governments of those polities today that are interested in their history. Mm-hmm. I think the military history community could could do more with that. Yeah, very good point. I I also think there's a certain extent where personal relations. I mean, this is something I drive at in my own work, but personal relations actually make make a major difference, even in scholarship. So, like, to to your point about like learning about, um, say, indigenous peoples. Um, sometimes it's breaking down academic barriers and at my little little institution it's really easy to do because if you only talk to historians you're only going to talk to two and a half people and um, like in in the paper I did on uh, Spanish Florida um, as I was thinking about that I have a colleague who's an anthropologist Dr. Jack Schultz he's a legend at the institution um, he did his work with the Seminoles in Oklahoma and in Florida, and so he was able to point out some things to me and just like give me the rundown on the Seminoles, who actually kind of show up after this, but part of their story is actually the War of the Spanish Succession, in a sense, clears out Florida for them to start coming there. Mm-hmm. The um, So getting to know scholars in other fields can allow you to... Um, do new things and what I've noticed um, as I've kind of started to try at least at a cursory level getting into the American indigenous peoples a lot of the guys who do this work they're having to play with archaeologists with anthropologists and there's like these historical anthropologists mm-hmm. to um because oftentimes too what they're dealing with when they're meeting these um indigenous peoples they they have oral traditions about these things. And then also in terms of um, creating broader perspective, even say when we're talking about Europe and North America, I think the ease of international travel in the last few decades mm-hmm. has allowed us to build international connections and talk with scholars at, at the international level. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned the international um, Congress of Military, or the International Commission of Military yeah. History, that was one of the kind of the forerunners to really connecting people, and now it's just gotten so much easier, I think, mm-hmm. about just just for me, some dude who grew up in northern Nevada, spent all my time in the West, never traveled east of the Mississippi, and then suddenly showing up in Scotland to do graduate work, mm-hmm. and allowed me to um, really expand my world and make connections with people who, say, if I had been born 50 years earlier, never would have known. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, 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 it gets voices in perspectives in that is going to enhance our ability to analyze and get us a deeper analysis of, of these conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, uh, you know, made, uh, I've benefited from a lot of South Asian sources mm-hmm. on uh, the, war, the the conflict in Bengal in, uh, uh, during the Seven Years' War. With the concurrent conflict in North America, again, kind of, you know, uh, playing off, you know, Caleb's observations, what what we ought to do, what is only going to help us is with, when, when we think about the history of indigenous peoples of North America and those conflicts, we use indigenous voices as sources. 
that they're not they're not something that is lost to history that though the that those communities have historians that are alive today and are doing great work and that when we when we continue to think about uh, warfare and conflict in North America or, or throughout the Western Hemisphere in the 18th century we we ought to benefit from and we ought to really uh, uh, use and in some cases even prefer indigenous voices and indigenous perspectives on indigenous people's history and so um, uh, you know I've, I've really benefited from uh, you, you know looking at uh, like for you know the Anglo-Cherokee War mm -hmm. you know looking at the um, uh, the, the, the Cherokee got the various Cherokee governments you know statements about you know uh, works of scholarship that they think are mm -hmm. um, are, are useful and then with, you know, kind of broadening that uh, internationally, um, like the, uh, um, the Asiatic Society of Bangladesh has this wonderful open encyclopedia of Bangladesh. Mm. And uh, so it, it deals with the history of Bengal broadly. Mm -hmm. And the, the work of scholars in those areas, you know, has, has really, um, Enriched and helped me frame better thinking about uh, warfare in South Asia during the, the mid 18th century, and it would have been much more difficult for me to do that, like when I was in graduate school in the 1990s. Yeah, I mean through the internet too, it's yeah. allowed people, scholars around the world, to just get information out there. Like you're just now aware of it in a way that you, it would have been really, really hard to find this stuff out. Mm -hmm say in 1990 or 1980. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's there's uh, a lot of the, um, I finished my PhD dissertation in, in 2001, and a lot of the primary sources, the manuscript and printed primary sources I used, I accessed on microfilm mm -hmm. by interlibrary loan. Mm -hmm. My advisors who did their PhDs 30 years earlier would not have done that. They would have been in the archives. Mm -hmm. uh, my students today, um, well, I, I actually actually have zero doctoral students now because one just defended her dissertation. So I'm actually proud to say that I have zero doctoral students because she is no longer a doctoral student. Congratulations. Thank well, yeah, so wonderful uh, Dr. Amber Colvin in, in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. Congratulations, uh, Dr. Colvin. <laughs> but the the yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the 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 point is that. Scholars who are earning their PhDs uh, now would access those sources most many times still on microfilm, mm -hmm. but now partly through the microfilm that has been digitized. Yeah, uh, and there's uh, and as a uh, a special collection cataloger, I'm, I'm I'm very passionate about this. That to make that happen requires putting money into putting resources into. Uh, building the metadata and the cataloging for that so that people mm -hmm. can find what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. But that goes back to Caleb, what you were saying about uh, that a lot of the Western European countries, um, a lot of the EU community has invested in making archival resources more available that way. Yeah. Either by original digitization or digitizing microfilm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how fast it's moved because we think about what you did in 2001. And yeah. then I finished my PhD in 2015. I, you got right. the stuff on microfilm 
when Correct. your supervisors couldn't. Correct. And then you move forward 14 years or even mm-hmm. just a decade. Well, I finished in 14, so I'm, I'm kind of of your generation. Yeah. Same thing, all digitized. Yeah. 2015, I was thinking about a lot of the archival material I used was not digitized, but printed primary sources, I didn't need to go to the British Library to <laughs> I get, get it. Yeah, I, I could pull them off Google Books, and yep. then Google Books, I started to notice during my PhD, was making things harder and harder to access. But then the Internet Archive showed up. God bless it. It's a beautiful resource. Like it's mm-hmm. um, Well, and for me, uh, the French National Archives has done a ton to digitize, and of course they start with Napoleon and the stuff proximate to him. Um, so that's that's been, uh, again, a, a great source for printed primaries. Uh, Hathi Trust is worth a mention there, too, yeah. because uh, Google Books, they just digitize it and throw it out there with no organization. For example, if there's a, a multi-volume work, they consider each volume of the work a separate edition of the same thing. That, that's mm-hmm. just nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but on the, the positive side, the material's available, but there's just it's not organized and it's very difficult to find. Right. Hathi Trust has organized a lot of the Google Books digitized uh, uh, materials mm-hmm. so that you can, Google Books made them available and then you can use Hathi Trust to find them. But that is an excellent point, Caleb, in that when, when I was doing my dissertation research in the 1990s, I was still going to libraries that had original print copies of some of those 18th century military treatises. And I would not, you know, when, when I've done work more recently, I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, uh, it's, it's funny how it's worked now. I just like have so many PDFs, mm-hmm. but because I'm actually a curmudgeonly baby boomer in a uh, millennial's <laughs> body, I, I then turn around and go to actually online resources like lulu.com and actually have printed up copies for myself <laughs> because I actually process the information better. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm, I'm a digital wanderer, so if you come in my office, I have four or five screens running at any given time. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there is one, well, no, more than one, but there are, there's uh, one particular instance in which you might have to examine the original, and that has to do with something we were uh, talking about earlier with uh, uh, Dr. Q. Davies' work, uh, which is the history of reading. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need to look at the original, and Hugh's actually done some work in this area. Uh, if that particular copy is annotated or has some type of, of uh, provenance uh, information in it or some type of association mm-hmm. that, where, that makes that particular copy important, mm-hmm. then okay. you'll want to look at it. And there's a lot to be learned about the, the history of how a particular uh, book was used by examining the provenance of as many individual copies as you, know, you can look at it's one way. One yeah. way to at least get insight into. I know uh, there's like a whole field of 18th and even early modern um, reading, like just the study of reading. Oh, it's a gigantic field. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. yeah. There, I encourage there's, to look into it. There's Why? like, um, I know, and also just the, the print industry. Like out of St. Andrews, you have uh, Andrew Pedigree and his whole team who are doing stuff on early modern printing. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're making, you're, you're, you're amplifying my point, and I appreciate yeah. it, about our colleagues in Sharp, uh, Society of the History of Authorship, Reading, and Publishing. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, military historians, you got, got to get into that. That is a great group. Their journal, Book History, is over 20 years old now. Uh, I mean, that, that 
that that field needs our interaction and we need their interaction. Yeah. Well, what's funny too is we think about it, I'm, I'm gonna bring the history of reading to the present because digitization has changed how we read. Like you think about, well for me, I'm, I'm old fashioned so I gotta read print because mm -hmm. I, I have personal issues. The, uh, the thing is, um, what's interesting is with these digitized sources and then like what I've been amazed at what my students are able to do and I refuse to learn for reasons. The um, they're able to get, like, say, Google some of these digital tools to just break down the text for them, so they can search these. Yeah, scans. OCR. And um, I know our our friend and colleague, Dr. Jamel Ostwald, over at Eastern Connecticut. He's doing some cool stuff with this, mm -hmm. where he's. He's running scans of all these printed 18th century sources and doing like, I don't know, like word graphs and figuring out like what's being mentioned. And then he's taking that information and then he's running it through, um, what, SIGs, right? His yeah, and, and part of, you know, uh, the interesting part of that work, and we talk about this with Janelle a lot, is that uh, the larger the, 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 body of data that you have, the more you have to become concerned with different text strings meaning the same thing. Mm -hmm. Place names are a great example. That like you can't say how many instances are there of, you know, some place when there's five different spellings mm -hmm. in the eighteenth century sources that you have. Mm -hmm. You can't so you can't look you can't uh, get an automated answer uh, from how many times did uh, some general appear uh, important when the, the person is known by five or six different names right. over the course of that person's career? You have to, so when you're manipulating the data, you have to, or, or a good way to do that is to pick a standardized form and then say that's, that's our, our common tag that we're going to use, and then the other names are variants. And that is, uh, 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 there's a whole area of information organization called authorities cataloging mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is, is about that. And that's the, the in my uh, library information science work, that's the area that I publish in. And so the, the opportunities there, you know, we're talking about uh, overlap with, you know, people who do history of books and reading. The information organization people, librarians and archivists, you know, we need them and, and they need us. Mm -hmm. But I am them, and I am us. <laughs> <laughs> but, gentlemen, uh, it sounds like 18th century studies are in a great place with lots of directions to go. So, Dr. Cargus, Dr. Danley, thank you. Dr. Abel, thank you. Thank you very much. And we're here with Dr. Amber Batura, who is Assistant Professor of Military and Security Studies at the Air Command and Staff College. Dr. Batura, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. And so, uh, among other things, you are uh, an expert on uh, kind of the soldier of the Vietnam era. So let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about who this person is. So let's start off with the obvious question: Who is the Vietnam soldier? Um, well, if you think about an image that you have, you're probably going to think a man, uh, even though you did have women serving in different capacities, especially as nurses. Um, but you're, but in other ways too. But you're gonna think 
a young guy. Um, 19 is the oft-quoted uh, statistic for the average age of a Vietnam soldier. Um, and there's been debate around that, but generally that's that's about a pro that's about the average, um, which was very different in Vietnam from World War II, where they uh, where it's, it's like about twenty six. Yeah, yeah, and so it was a huge difference for um, for the American public to kind of reconcile that and what did that look like. And so I think we're still kind of navigating that as we saw that shift. It wasn't for historians not that long ago, right? And so you have 19 years old, uh, at, a lot of them are either drafted or they are incentivized by the draft to join during the Vietnam War. So it is a misnomer to say that the Vietnam was like a drafted war, but there are a, a significant amount of people who volunteered say that the draft kind of forces them to volunteer. Perhaps coerced war is the better way to say it. Mm -hmm. And so, you also have a rural um, population. A lot of the, because of the way the draft worked um, prior to 69, right, you have a lot of people who came from undereducated rural communities in the United States who either had joined or thought about joining because of economic advancement or they'd been drafted um, because a lot of people were channeled if they were gonna go to college. Um, and so you have a young rural uh, undereducated um, to some extent population that's largely serving in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. right, so let's kind of start from the, the, the earlier stages of this conflict, right? Um, going into Vietnam we have, I think the point is arguable, but basically the only peacetime draft system feeding into the army, right? Mm -hmm. So what's the manning policy kind of going into the war as the U.S. ramps up its involvement in the 60s? Uh, so when you, so when we start to get into Vietnam, right, we're coming off of World War II and off of Korea. So you have the greatest generation kind of idea going on and then the forgotten war of Korea. One of the things that I study a lot is the way pop culture and media influences soldiers and that's really where I get at who the soldier is and and what they're experiencing. Uh, and Hebner, Andrew Hebner um, writes about how the soldiers during Korea, in, during Korea's war, really have to battle with a changing narrative about the soldier from World War II, especially when it comes to like POWs and things like that, where they're looked down fairly negatively in Korea. Um, and so you have those two legacies at war uh, are kind of at play when you enter into Vietnam. And so you have a peacetime draft as well happening. Um, and so the military at the start of Vietnam has a, has a peacetime draft. Um, you see you see some diversity in terms of like class representation because of that draft um, mm -hmm. happening. But in, in people that are left over, right, from, from World War II in Korea. And then as you, as you start to shift into the war, right, that's when we start to see the selective service becoming more problematic. And so the soldier starts to shift as draft boards um, are, and Amy Ruttenberg writes, you know, about this really well. So starts to shift about uh, with draft boards that cause issues as they're largely um, dealt with by 
local community members who then are making choices about who to send and who not to send. And if you know, you know, Joe's son, you are less likely probably to want to send him to war than somebody you don't know in town. And so you start to see quite a bit of uh, issues arising, especially around race uh, in, in those things. And so as the war continues, the draft becomes more and more of a problem. Um, then you see the shift in the draft to the lottery system, which starts to even out some of the racial and class issues a little bit, but there's always this level of like inequity that exists and kind mm -hmm. of colors the service members in Vietnam where they feel, especially black men, feel like they have been targeted to some extent. By the end of the war, the numbers balance out. Black men were 12% of the population around Vietnam, but they were almost double that percentage of like casualty in the early part of the war and that sort of that representation balances out towards the end of the war but that experience in the early part causes a lot of tension to rise kind of the poison the well yeah yeah so you you talked about kind of there's these two draft systems which if i'm if i'm understanding correctly roughly correspond to johnson and nixon so the the johnson era selective service system uh, as you talked about um, give us kind of the, 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 the basics of it. Uh, how, how does it actually work and how does it keep some people out while sending some people to the war? So the Selective Service Board um, is, I think a lot of times when people think of the, the draft, they think of the lottery system where kind of essentially you got a, you registered, right? Men had to register, you got a lot, you got a number system and then you get, you know, the rolling the ball bingo-like mm -hmm. uh, image in your head of it. Um, but that came later in the war. Prior to that was uh, selective service where you registered. Um, there were boards, that there were local boards that were made up of community members who would then meet and look at the, the numbers of people who were available, whose numbers had come up, and they would make decisions. You could campaign to the board, um, looking for a deferment or something. And there were multiple deferments available. Um, I don't know the details of all, I can't off the top of my head all of the details that were available, but you had multiple options of, of getting out of the draft in some ways. Often what was happening in the early one is that you saw some um, racism exposed with oftentimes these boards would select um, people of color to go ahead of the white sons that they were representing. Mm -hmm. The boards were were largely white um, and upper middle class people, and so you started to see a lot of inequity. Uh, you saw inequity in class as well, um, where again, if you are if you know somebody's son or it's your own child, you're less likely to send them. And so, but if it's somebody from you know the quote unquote wrong side of the tracks back right. in the day or a community then then that's easier to send and so you started seeing that you make the switch i think in 1969 um, and the lottery system is designed to try to 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 get rid of some of those inequities um not a perfect system and that's where you started to see people become a little more panicked and and like oh my number could be called up right and so um that does help make the service a little more representative though but you can still get deferments and so oftentimes this is why christian Athey argues it's a working class war even though most tours we would all agree are working class but in this instance right this was where the privileged and the 
those who had more money were able to potentially get out of the service by either getting choosing a college career, um, going into the reserves, or mm -hmm. um, getting a doctor to write an excuse, right, a medical deferment. Mm -hmm. hey, so, if I remember the number correctly, it's about 25% of mm -hmm. Vietnam soldiers who are outright drafted. Mm -hmm. um, but you mentioned this, this large category of people who we might call coerced. The mm -hmm. people who maybe are coming up on the draft so they volunteer anyway. So uh, is, is that basically what's driving people to, to, and I'm doing air quotes, volunteer? Is that they know their draft number's coming up? I think it's more, I, I think the draft number is part of it. There's a lot of reasons why people chose to go to war. In terms of the draft, I think it was 2.2 million people who volunteered. That might be the wrong number, but 80% um, of them say that the draft had something to do with, with their desire. A lot of it I don't think is like out of fear necessarily as wanting control of the situation. Mm. Um, they, if you were drafted, your chances of going infantry was really high. And so if you volunteered, you had much more control over which service, um, and, and then that would kind of significantly change your experience in the war. And so a lot of people volunteered, I think in an effort to kind of try to control what their experience would look like and where they got to serve. Mm -hmm. um, and as the war progressed, less and less people wanted to take the chances of infantry, um, knowing kind of how bad the casualties became. Mm -hmm. And, and so would they try to get, for example, into the Navy rather than the Army, things like that? Yeah, the reserves was the biggest that they wanted. The reserves was the biggest because they felt like it was, um, it was less likely for them to experience any kind of, and Johnson didn't call up the reserves in an effort to kind of keep the war out of the public attention for a mm -hmm. long time. And so, in fact, I think there was like a very long waiting list to get into and so, into the reserve, so Air Force and Navy and, and trying to get away from the more ground operational mm -hmm. troops um, became kind of the biggest drive. Mm -hmm. and so you, you mentioned earlier a lot of your research focuses on kind of media images. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so what is the media image of the Vietnam soldier, if, if that's correct to say that in a singular way? I think you get two main images that are evoked in popular memory today. Um, I think, and, and has, it started to be created at the time. So I think there is the victim and the villain, really. Mm -hmm. um, and the victim in multiple ways, but you have kind of this image of Vietnam that's very different than the World War II soldier, and Andrew Huebner talks about this a lot too, where they are, they, they become symbolic of the war itself, I think, in a lot of ways. And so the service member in Vietnam had like an extra burden of, of the public could not understand the war. And the service members didn't have an easy go-to answer for like what they were doing over there, right? There was no Hitler, there was no Nazis, there was nothing to really point and say like, this is what I'm doing, look at how good we are. Mm -hmm. Vietnam is a small country, 8,000 miles away, and, and most people didn't know where it was before uh, on a map in the United States before they started the war. And so you get this sense of these soldiers who are going and doing their duty to the country, what what Kennedy asks, like what their country asks of them, right? However, they 
are in this war that, especially after 68, more and more Americans are seeing as problematic or potentially um, illegal in a lot of ways. And there's questions of the morality, of the correctness of America being there, of what they're doing there, of our policy decisions there, of our conduct there. And so the service member becomes this victim of policy and mm -hmm. victim of politicians. And so yes, honorable doing the doing what's asked of them but what's been asked of them is so terrible and then in in that way that's a way that i think american public tries to understand the atrocities that get talked about in in vietnam a lot where mm -hmm. they then will cast these soldiers these soldiers are and again hebner talks about this these soldiers are still they were good boys the war has turned them into this. So this is kind of, uh, if we can call it though, something like the Full Metal Jacket thesis? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, where like the war has done this to you. And and I, uh, Hebner I think has like a title or something, a quote that says like, I sent you good boys and you, you brought me back mm -hmm. killers. And so um, you have that. I also think in some ways they're a victim of they become a victim, especially later on, as media starts to pick up and Americans start to deal with the legacy of Vietnam in that they are silenced in a lot of ways. And so, like, yes, you are a Vietnam veteran, but this is a war that we don't understand and have not yet, we're not ready to hear about it yet and deal with it. And so, in some ways, I think the media often betrays um, Vietnam soldiers as victims in terms of like they're damaged in some way the yeah. the war has damaged them the the experience has damaged them it, there's very rarely that you see images of a Vietnam soldier that's just like okay and proud of their service and there are lots of people who had who are proud of their service proud of their experience did great things for the country and but and then are fine with it and most of the time, everything we see is sort of this damaged, troubled experience. So and that's what I mean by victim. It's complicated and nuanced. And then villain, I think a lot of the times we started to see a shift as the American public began to try to negotiate the experience of Vietnam. Again, the service members become a site of that, of that negotiation, and they become the villain. No longer are you a victim. You are the perpetrator of these things. You went and you're a murderer, you're a baby killer, you're not, you're not somebody who's just doing their job, you're choosing this. Uh, if you were drafted, that's more complicated, but then there's also a question of like, why didn't you protest more? Why didn't you uh, conscientious object? Like, and so mm -hmm. I think you see the service members become a site of our, of our debate on the Vietnam War itself, really. And it's striking as you're talking about this. It, uh, I'm thinking that this this almost entirely robs the the service person of their agency mm -hmm. because they don't have a voice in all of this. Yeah, I actually find that super interesting in my research that I do on um, the magazine talks about um, kind of of this where veterans then service members and veterans. It's complicated. The war is so long, so their title shifts frequently, but service members and veterans start to reach out to popular culture in a lot of different ways to kind of express their voice. Um, in particular, I research Playboy magazine and look at how they create community amongst themselves there. 
but it's in these like smaller venues where you really have to kind of find the voice. They have their they have the VFWs, mm-hmm. um, they have veteran organizations, they have service clubs and things like that. But I think in media, you really start to see them navigate and argue with what with what society is telling them their experience has been. Mm-hmm. So you see when. Um, uh, Oliver Stone's movie comes out, um, which I'm blanking on the title of, Born on the Fourth of July, maybe. Yeah. Um, you have an argument in Playboy between some uh, the some veterans who argue who say, right, like we wanted this movie to be our our story, right? He was, Stone was a veteran, mm-hmm. uh, and instead they they're like, we just get another like war story uh, that's not accurate to the way we experience things and so I, I think in a lot of ways soldiers reached out in smaller communities to start to kind of combat this narrative but it's not it's overwhelmed by bigger popular media by louder people like Oliver Stone yeah yeah and and Full Metal Jacket and, and Deer platoon, Hunter and yeah. Platoon and so Apocalypse they, Now of course yeah they get kind of wiped out but I think there is you can see in smaller places them trying to kind of argue this mm-hmm. deal with their own the way they're being betrayed and how their their image is being shown what what did they say about themselves what aside from from just combating the kind of the popular narrative what did they want to be known about themselves i think that is the interesting thing when we look at these incredibly long wars which we'll have to start dealing with soon with Iraq and Afghanistan and the soldier experience there too is depending on when and where and how you served your experience is so different they're essentially different wars in a lot of respects and so it sort of depended individually on the person and Mm -hmm. so you get a lot of people who write uh, into the into magazines who talk about with pride their experience right we've seen this um, and even the uh, Ken Burns and Lynn Novak mm-hmm. uh, documentary where you have people who are like, I'm proud of my service and what I did. Um, and I am, am proud of, of the people I fought with and how we fought and the way those, those battles were engaged. But then you have people who really struggle quite a bit with the experience and in very much, I think, the same way, this is one of the things about studying military history that's so cool, right, is seeing both the differences and the similarities over time. And so mm-hmm. the same way you see in every war how people struggle with what war does to them. Mm-hmm. Like, how do, I'm proud of what I did, but what I did required a lot of emotional and physical toll on them. And so how do they adjust after that experience, no longer being the person they were before it? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of discussion in that. A lot of them talk about just wanting to move on from it. Uh, that a lot of people didn't want to hear their stories and they didn't know how to share their stories. Um, there's a, this really poignant letter that is published in Playboy where a soldier writes in and he asks, it's to the Playboy advisor, which is a feature that you could ask a bunch of questions like, how do I match my shoes with my tie, uh, with my tie and my belt and, and things like that. But they also took serious questions and he had, he recently comes back from Vietnam and he is like, I don't love my girlfriend anymore. I can't feel love at all. And I don't know 
what's wrong with me or what to do and so he's just kind of this heartfelt plea to the playboy on like what how do I how do I make myself feel again and love again and should I break up with her to be nice and he explains like he had just come back from the war and so you have those where you see these soldiers that are really trying to um in service members who are trying to navigate their experience but I think overall they just wanted to be seen so the experience is very different for everybody and very individual especially as the years go on in Vietnam but overall I think a lot of them were just struggling to understand and, and want to be seen and they felt like a lot of the media was just showing one stereo like one or two stereotypes right mm-hmm. we're either broken or we're to blame mm-hmm. Where are we, like, where's the human nuanced version of what we experienced? Do you find that these these um, communications are outward focused? That it's kind of a, you know, veterans uh, speaking to non-veterans? Or do you find a discourse going on between them? Do they get into discussions or even arguments with each other? I think that's a, that's a good question. I think in... It's kind of a mix of both. I feel like a lot of times when they write into these magazines and talk about these things, they know that they're writing to Playboy or to a comic or to Esquire or something like that, but the letters feel intimate to the editor. Like they actually have built a connection to this magazine. They've built a community around it. So in in many ways that we think of like fandoms today and yeah. stuff like that. Right? It sounds a whole lot like an internet community. Yeah, they have built these these communities with each other. And so um, it, the parasocial stuff that starts to happen where they an article is printed, an argument is made in, in a magazine that talks about like military trials and, and uh, punishment, UCMJ issues and stuff like that. And then you get letters that are written and say like, oh my God, yeah, this is exactly what happened to me. And so in some ways it's, they know it's a public facing letter, but it's written like you would, your favorite YouTuber, right? Like where you feel like you know them and you're talking to them. And so, and sometimes they talk with each other, right? They're like a lot of times, and this is one of the interesting things about Playboy's letter to the editor features is they will be responding to other people's letters, not necessarily to the original article. And so, and Playboy will oftentimes like print those so you can sort of see the conversation happening over a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it's it's kind of a, a prototypical online message board. Yeah, yeah, in a lot of ways. Do you think that that these these veterans were kind of deriving catharsis from this? Do you think there was a, a therapeutic element to it? I think in a, I think in some ways they were reaching out to try to find a way to have conversations in a safe space. Mm-hmm. And in my work, I argue that Playboy and other play, and other media like it, because it was removed from the military, people could be a little bit more honest without fear of any repercussions. Um, and but because it was something like Playboy, right? It's not a war leaning Mm -hmm. magazine like that's not the intent they're not going after military members they're not geared towards military members that's nothing about the content of that magazine is aimed in that way and so it becomes I think like a safe space where they can have these conversations that are just happening in the public right they're just stories about what's going on in the world at the time 
Um, but they can finally talk about it. And I think to the same way, I've had a lot of discussions on comparing this to like modern social media, right? But we have the anonymity of the keyboard. And in some ways, I think like the anonymity of the letter, even though their name is on it, like their full name's not on it. Right. And, and they have a chance of saying something uh, about the situation. So in terms of the kind of the historian's craft, um, this, this, I imagine, can feel like treading in a fairly intimate space. Mm -hmm. So how do you as a historian handle that, uh, what, what may in some ways feel like being an outsider to this conversation? I have spent a lot of time um, reaching out to veterans and kind of asking, you know, how important, is, how important were these things to you, in what ways, and just really it feels a lot like oral history right where you're you're listening to intimate details and asking for intimate details of people's lives um and so in some ways i try to let them know ahead of time like what i'm doing and the intent of it but honestly i think one of the most fascinating things about being a historian is that we get to be the keepers of story of these people's stories right like without these intimate details right war becomes very um, uh, I don't want to say war is operational right but, but it can become very cold and yeah, sterile yeah it can become very cold and we can forget easily especially now that you know teaching at uh, teaching teaching military officers right we can forget the the toll that we're asking and and the intimacy that comes with the decisions that they have to make and so in some ways, as a historian, like I try to find, my, I, I've kind of given up on the idea of being removed from the subject and recognizing that I have become attached to these veterans and their stories, right? And understanding that as a as an academic, I then need to go and verify information. I need to make sure that what I'm telling is as representational as I can make it to um, the larger picture. But at the end of the day, like we are telling stories that might not otherwise have been told in some ways. And I, I think that's one of the coolest things about working with people who like we, that are still around, right? And we get to ask these questions or read their papers and their letters, right? And, and know like, hey, we're, we're the keepers of these stories and we get to pass these on. I cannot come up with a better conclusion than that. So <laughs> Dr. Vitera, thank you very much. Thank you so much. So we have heard today from Dr. Joshua Meeks, Assistant Professor of Strategy and Policy at the Naval War College, from Dr. Sarah Myers, Assistant Professor of History at Messiah University, Dr. Mark Danley, an independent scholar and librarian, and Caleb Cargus, Associate Professor of History at Concordia University, and then finally from Dr. Amber Batur, Assistant Professor of Military and Security Studies at the Air Command and Staff College. I hope you've enjoyed this special episode from the SMH 2023, and we look forward to doing more of these in the future. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.